Over the past few decades, Eastern meditation has become a popular practice in the United States. As, as the culture has grown more and more secular, it's become much more open to dabbling in different religious practices and various pagan belief systems. Of course, as believers, we are also commanded in Scripture to meditate. But there is a vast fundamental difference between biblical meditation and Eastern meditation. And one of the dangerous byproducts of living in a culture that is secular, that has adopted things like Eastern meditation, is the tendency for some Christians, when they hear the term meditation, to think of Eastern meditation. But in Eastern meditation, the aim is to empty the mind completely of all conscious thought, while the aim of biblical meditation is a command to fill your mind with Christ and the truth of Scripture. And that process of dwelling intently on the Scripture and, and applying its truth to our own life is, is essential to our growth and sanctification. In fact, Christian meditation on the truth of Scripture is one of the primary ways that the Holy Spirit works through the Scriptures to sanctify us on a daily basis. The goal of the Christian life, then, is not to try and, and settle ourselves by the absence of thought, but to be sanctified by the filling of our minds with truth. In the book of Hebrews, we have been called to meditate specifically on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the author has led us to think on one primary truth about Christ, and he's called us to look at that truth from various angles. The primary truth of this letter, of course, is the superiority of Christ. And we've been convinced of that truth in several different ways. Recently, our authors called us to meditate on Jesus as the one who's superior to Moses. But as we turn our minds to this great truth again this morning, I want to be very clear that the author's point is not simply to put us through a mental exercise of meditation. He's calling us to think intently on this aspect of Christ's superiority so that it will have a lasting effect on each of our lives. He's calling us to understand that this aspect of Christ's superiority should change us. As we look to Christ, we should be transformed, conformed to his image. And it's my fervent prayer this morning that as we open up the scriptures again together and behold the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit would accomplish that work of sanctification in us. The theme of the book is the superiority of Christ, but specifically in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3, we've encountered this simple theme, meditate on Jesus as the one greater than Moses. Let's read our text together, Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are 
if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. If you've been with us, then you've already seen in verses 1 and 2 the command to set your mind on Jesus. That command was then followed by two descriptions of every believer. He called us holy brethren and those who have a shared calling. That was followed by two descriptions of Christ, his offices and his faithfulness, which led to the reason for the command. Why has he commanded us to set our minds on Jesus? It is because Jesus is superior to Moses. You will recall that in in verse 2, we're introduced to the, the primary Old Testament passage that's in the mind of the author as he makes this argument. It comes from Numbers chapter 12. Specifically verse 7, but we'll begin in verse 6. He said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? As we've highlighted, Moses was a, the premier prophet of the Old Testament, chosen by God to be God's mouthpiece of revelation to the people of Israel. He stood as the greatest prophet in Israel's history until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that because in verse 3, the author boldly says, For he, speaking of Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus has surpassed him. In our last message, we began to look at the two arguments that the author gives to prove his point. And for each of those two arguments, he makes two subpoints or gives two illustrations or examples of why those arguments are true. We've looked at the beginning of the first argument, which is the degree of Christ's superiority. Remember, he begins here with this first argument, not seeking to prove the fact that Jesus is greater than Moses, but to show us the vast degree between the glory of Moses and the glory of Christ, the vast gulf that exists between them. And he did that beginning with an illustration of a general truth, a general truth that we all understand. That truth is this, the builder of the house has more honor than the house. The builder of the house has more honor than the house. He means that to be a simple statement of fact that all of us can easily agree with. We understand that when a person builds a, a, a magnificent building, it puts their craftsmanship on display so that the glory of the building brings greater glory to the one who actually made the building. It's a general truth. Now, beginning our, our time together this morning, where we left off last time, he gives us a second illustration to show the degree of separation between the glory of Moses and the glory of Jesus. This second illustration is a theological truth. He began with a general truth. Now he moves to a theological truth. Look back at the text with me here, verse 4. For every house is built by someone... But the builder of all things is God. Now the first half of that statement, every house is built by someone, really serves as a tie-in from the general truth to the theological truth. He's simply saying that every house on the planet 
shows the truth of that illustration. To varying degrees, depending on the magnificence of the structure, that structure brings glory to the one who made it. That's the point. But now he introduces a theological truth. At the second half of that verse, he says, but the builder of all things is God. What is he saying? He's giving us this foundational truth. Just as a house brings glory to the builder, creation brings glory to the creator, who is none other than God himself. If that general truth can be universally accepted, that a house brings glory to the builder, then it points to the much greater, more expansive truth that God deserves the highest glory because he's the creator not of a single house, but of the entirety of the created universe. Every molecule in the universe is, owes its existence to the glory of God, the creative power of God. Every intelligent being in the universe owes its existence to the great power of God. And that creation then brings the utmost glory to God himself. The psalmist declares this in the famous psalm, Psalm 19, where he says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Saying creation is is telling, it's declaring the glory of God and their expanse declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The author there is just exalting this same general wonderful truth of God that as we look at the wonderful magnificence of all that he has made, it should rightly cause our hearts to turn to him as the most glorious one. Creation reveals the glory of the creator. And it turns out the more magnificent the creation is that you're beholding, the more it causes your heart to give glory to God. Perhaps you've been reminded of that as you've visited beautiful places in the world. When you behold a beautiful scene, some scenes are so beautiful that that we have to remind our eyes that what we're seeing is real. This is not on the television. This is not some magazine. This is really in front of me. And when you see something that's that breathtakingly beautiful, what should happen is your heart begins to leap for joy in awe of the goodness of God, the creative power of God and his glory. That is the point. Now let's bring that theological truth back into the context of the argument here in Hebrews. He's been saying that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So what he's teaching us by this illustration is that the degree to which Jesus is to be magnified over Moses is the same degree that God is to be glorified over the creation. That same gulf, that same absolute chasm between the glory of the creation itself and the glory of the creator is a great illustration of just how far apart the glory of Jesus is from the glory 
of Moses. The point of the author is to say, not only has Jesus been counted as worthy of more glory than Moses, the two are not even really in the same conversation. They're not even in the same league. There's a vast degree of difference between the glory of Moses and the glory of Jesus. Now, when you couple that fact with all that we've spent time studying about the life and ministry of Moses, as we've seen just how great a man he really was and all the wonderful things that God did through him, you understand how glorious Jesus must be to be this much exalted above even Moses. What we have in this text is is the same or similar experience that the disciples had when they were in a boat one evening that was about to be swamped by a storm, and Jesus stands up in the boat and calms the storm with only a word. Listen to their reaction, Mark 4.41. They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And as we respond to this text, we ought to be saying, who then is this that is exalted over even Moses? Who must this be? He can only be the perfect son of God. But now, having shown us the great degree, the chasm between the glory of Moses and the glory of Christ, he now turns to prove the fact To prove this fact, not to just show us the degree, not to just give us an illustration, but to prove the basis of his argument. Why can he say so confidently that the glory of Christ is not really even able to be compared to the glory of Moses because Christ is so far above him? Well, that brings us to argument number two, the basis of Christ's superiority. The basis, not just the degree, but the foundation on which this argument rests. And he gives us here two explanations. He had two illustrations of the first argument and now two (coughs) explanations of the second. Explanation number one is the context of Moses's faithfulness. The context of Moses' faithfulness. Look back at the text now in verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. This brings us back again to that key Old Testament text that stands in the backdrop, Numbers 12, specifically verse 7. Not so with my servant Moses, he is faithful in all my household. That's the the text on which this statement rests. Now, I want to help you become good Bible students here. Look back at that verse, or just the first phrase. There are two key words in that verse. Try to find them. The two key words that are crucial, not in the, not in the Numbers text, but in Hebrews 3, verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. The two key words are the word in and the word servant. In and servant. The house which Moses served belonged to God. When it says there in verse 5, Moses was faithful in all his house, that word his is likely capitalized in your Bible to help you understand the house is not Moses' house, it's God's house. And Moses is given a measure of delegated authority as a steward over God's house for a time. But what this text is telling us is that even still, 
Though he had such great authority, he was at the end of the day simply a member of the household. He was in the house. Yes, he acted with authority. He was delegated a a measure of authority. But at the end of the day, as great as he was, he was simply in the house, a member of the house. And his position, the author says, was that of servant. He was in the house as a servant. Now, most often in the New Testament, when you read the word servant in your Bible, it's usually the Greek word that should be translated as slave. And that's true almost all of the time, except here. In this text, he uses a Greek word that's only used in this one place in all of the New Testament, and it highlights something special about the servitude of Moses. It's not the word for slave. It is the word that legitimately should be translated as servant. Simon Kistemacher says this, It connotes one who wishes to serve, in contrast to a slave who must serve. The use of this Greek word, it highlights the true faithfulness of Moses. Moses was not simply compelled into service, but he gave it all he had. He served with great willingness, with great diligence. He embraced his role as a servant of God, a faithful servant. And yet, even though all of that is true, at the end of the day, he was simply a servant and a member of the household himself. Not only that... But notice the primary purpose of his service. Look back at verse 5 again. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. The ministry of Moses, the author says, was not an end in and of itself. To put it another way, the ministry of Moses was merely a shadow of what was to come. Remember, the primary ministry of Moses involved giving the law to the people. God revealed his law to Moses. Moses then gave that law to the people, actually twice. Deuteronomy is the second reiteration of the law to the people before they enter the land uh, of Israel. That, the, the law of God that governed the entire life of the people of Israel, as we have said, was so connected to Moses in the people's mind that they often simply refer to it as the law of Moses. In some cases, they just call it Moses for shorthand. That's how much Moses and the law went together. That was the primary role that he had in giving the old covenant relationship between God's people and himself through the people of Israel. Now, Moses played an important role in redemptive history. It's a role that was divinely, sovereignly ordained by God, but as important as it was, it was actually pointing to something yet to come. In fact, in chapter 10 of Hebrews, the author will say this even more explicitly. In chapter 10, verse 1, he says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Now specifically, Moses and the law that he gave, his ministry, pointed forward to another person. The law revealed the true depths of the people's sin. It revealed their need for forgiveness from God, their need for a true sacrifice. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, 
so that we may be justified by faith. The law reveals our sin. When we compare ourselves to all those specific details of the law, we quickly see that we don't measure up. And so it calls us to long for a salvation, Paul says, that's by faith apart from works. The sacrificial system that began under Moses pointed forward to the perfect sacrifice of Christ himself. And even Moses himself as the premier prophet pointed forward to a prophet that was yet to come. In fact, Moses tells us to expect another prophet in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This is in Deuteronomy. Moses is an old man. He's preparing the people to enter into the promised land as he's about to die and finish his time on this earth. And here in Deuteronomy 18, he says, you should be looking for another prophet. God says he will raise up another one. And the people knew to be expecting this new prophet. That's why when Jesus comes and begins to do the miracles that he does, the people begin to wonder, is this him? Specifically, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, listen to the response of the crowd to that miracle. John 6, 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet. Notice it doesn't say a prophet. It says, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. They understood, at least in that moment, that all that Jesus was doing was a testimony of God the Father, that, that this has to be the one. The testimony is so clear. He's got to be the prophet that Moses told us to expect in Deuteronomy 18. And so in summary, though Moses was exceptionally faithful to God, he was rightly revered by the people until the coming of Christ as the premier prophet, at the end of the day, he was simply a member of God's household who occupied the office of servant whose entire ministry was a shadow of something to come. Now, with that explanation in mind, he now moves to a second explanation to make his overarching point. And this explanation we'll call the context of Jesus' faithfulness. The context of Jesus' faithfulness. Look back now at verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Now, Bible scholars, there are two key words in this verse as well. What are they? Son and over. You see the connection. Moses was a servant in God's house, Jesus was a son over God's house. The relationship that Jesus shares with the Father is fundamentally different than the relationship that Moses shared with the Father. 
Throughout Hebrews thus far, if you've been with us, you understand the author has consistently and passionately sought to drive home this one truth about Jesus, and that is that he alone is the only begotten, unique Son of God. We've seen that his sonship places him above every other prophet in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. We've seen that his sonship places him even above the angels, Hebrews 1.5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And now we see that the sonship of Christ places him even above Moses, as he says here in Hebrews 3, 6, but Christ was faithful as a son. Literally, the Greek text leaves out the verb was faithful. That's why it may be in italics in your Bible, because it doesn't appear there. And really, by leaving that verb out, he just highlights the point that he's making. We could say it more clearly this way. Now, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, but Christ as a son. That's what he's saying. There's the difference. The primary reason that Jesus is worthy of so much more glory and honor than even Moses is because he alone is the perfect, unique, eternal son of God. Think of it this way, Moses was blessed to have a unique relationship with God in which God spoke to him face to face, or literally mouth to mouth, Numbers 12.8. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? From that verse, we understand the people rightly revered Moses. God told them to revere Moses, but Jesus is God in human flesh, and he came so that he could speak as God face-to-face with us all. He came to humanity as a whole in human form. With Moses, God speaks to one man who then speaks on God's behalf to the people. With Jesus, God himself becomes a man and speaks himself to the people. That's why it says, following the verses we just read in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, in verse 3 it says, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus Christ, when you see Jesus, what you see is God, the entirety of God. He is one in essence with the Father. He shares all of the attributes of his deity in his very nature. And so the author can say he is the radiance of the glory of the Father, the exact representation of his nature. The Apostle John says it this way, John 1, 17 and 18, For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. What he's saying is no one has seen God at any time until they saw God in the Son. He has explained him. Moses was a man of God, 
Jesus is God become man. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses because he is the only divine son of God. That brings us to the second key word in that phrase. Not only is he the son, but he emphasizes the fact that unlike Moses who was in God's house, he says Jesus was over his house. Moses was a faithful servant in the house of God as one of the people belonging to the house. Jesus was faithful over God's house as the son of God who owns the house. The house here again refers to the people of God. The people of God are made up of of every person who's ever repented of their sins and placed their faith in the Messiah. Those before Christ looked forward to his coming and had faith that he was coming. We have faith that he has come and is the person of Jesus Christ. Specifically, Moses was over the people of God in the sense of the household of Israel. Jesus, of course, is over all the people of God, but specifically he's given to the New Testament church, which comes on the scene in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. In fact, the Bible reveals that that Jesus is, is not just a son over the house, but he is, in fact, the foundation and support of the house, and he is the head by whom the house or the church is ruled. We see that he's the foundation of the house in Ephesians chapter 2. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit." Christ Jesus is the cornerstone that we talked about last week. The entirety of the house rests upon his foundation. But then he's also the head of the church, Colossians 1.18. He's also head of the body of the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So again, while Moses deserves our respect the premier prophet of the Old Testament. He is merely a member of God's house like the rest of God's redeemed people. But Jesus, as God's divine son, is the owner of the house, the foundation of the house, indeed the ruler of the house. And yet, he came to serve the house. Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What separates Jesus Christ and makes him worthy of infinite glory above all others is first his inherent glory as God, as the perfect, unique, only begotten Son of God. But in addition to that, he deserves unspeakable glory because as eternal God, he humbled himself, taking on the the, the form of a, a human body, a real human body that he might serve us, even to the point of death. Jesus, like Moses, was a faithful servant of God and a faithful servant of God's people. The crucial difference is the fact that Moses served as a servant. Jesus served as a son. Moses simply did what was expected of servants. Jesus did what is expected of servants, though in actuality, he was really a son. And that's why the author says he has been counted 
worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus is, in fact, the most glorious being in the entire universe, and yet he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that he might redeem us from our sins. Paul says it this way so beautifully in Philippians chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not grasp equality with God, or regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But as we began this message, I told you that the author's intention for us was not simply to meditate on these truths, but to be transformed by them. These truths should have a lasting impact and effect on us. And the author helps us to see that in the closing words of verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Notice he, he takes us out of, of sort of looking upward at Christ and then with just a word he brings it down to our level and all of a sudden the implications of what he has said are staring us in the face. He says whose house we are. Whose house we are. Now we see very clearly that the entirety of this this exercise, throughout the entirety of this exercise in this text, he's been thinking of the, the house of God as a people. The house of God is, has always been a people. It's not a building. It never has been, never will be. That's why North Lake Bible Church is a church even now, though we don't own a building. And one day, if the Lord allows us to have a building, it won't add to us any new status or legitimacy because the church is here, the gathered people of God. And here, in this moment, the author steps out of his theological argument and he looks boldly at his readers, at you and me, and says, we are Christ's church. We are his house. But in order to understand the impact of what he's saying, we have to understand the grammatical difference between an indicative statement and a conditional statement. Because if he was simply making an indicative statement, which is a simple statement of fact, he would have said it this way. We are the house of Christ, period. But that's not what he says. Instead, he adds a condition, making this a conditional statement. Look back at the text. Verse 6, whose house we are if, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. What he's saying here is that not everyone is a part of Christ's house. Or to be more plain, not everyone is one of Christ's people. 
Or to be even more clear, not every person is a Christian. Not every person has been saved from God's wrath over their sin and is safely found in Jesus Christ. That designation is reserved only for those who meet a certain list of criteria. And the author introduces one of the key characteristics or criteria of a true believer here in these words. Whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. What the author is saying is that true Christians, people who really belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, are those who remain steadfast in their confidence. And the word confidence and the phrase, the boast of our hope, mean the same thing here in this text. Now, we've said this before, but the concept of hope in the Greek New Testament is different than the concept of hope that we, in the way that we use it here in English. When we say we hope something will happen, what we mean is we would really like it to happen, but there's quite a bit of doubt and uncertainty as to whether or not it actually will. That's not how the Bible uses the word hope. When the author here says that he, we have to hold on to the boast of our hope, he's talking about a hope that's secure, a hope that is, that, that is real. In fact, when the Bible uses the term hope, it means much more along the lines of what we mean with the word confidence. That's why he puts the two together. The true Christian maintains, holds fast his or her confidence and the boast of his or her hope. The true people of God are marked by this resolute confidence. This is what theologically we refer to as the perseverance of the saints. The saints will persevere until the end, when the Lord brings them home or the Lord returns. But to understand this, we really have to ask the most important question, the obvious question. What is the Christian's confidence and hope? If we're to hold fast to this confidence and, and this boast of our hope, we better know what that is. Because so many people have mistakenly thought that they were true Christians when in fact they were placing their confidence in the wrong thing all along. And many have seemingly abandoned the Christian faith altogether, leaving a wake of devastated, confused family members and friends because though they seemed to be genuine Christians, their confidence was placed in the wrong thing. And so when that confidence and hope is removed from them, they walk away. So what is the confidence and hope of the true Christian? I'll summarize it this way. Our confidence and hope is Jesus Christ and his gospel. Jesus Christ and his gospel. And I phrase the answer that way very intentionally because you have to understand that first and foremost, the true Christian loves, worships, trusts, and longs for a person, the person Jesus Christ. If you're a true Christian, then the substance of your confidence will revolve around Jesus Christ. And when someone asks you to give a defense for your faith, what will immediately come out of your mouth is nothing about yourself, but everything about Jesus Christ. 
The true Christian effortlessly and joyously follows in the footsteps of Paul and declares with tears of joy from Philippians 3, 7, and 8, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. In the simplest, most basic terms, the confidence and hope of a Christian centers on the person of Jesus Christ. The Christian has come to understand that Jesus Christ is the treasure hidden in the field. He really is the pearl of great price, whose value is so exceedingly vast that the Christian is ready and willing to lay down all other things that he or she might have Jesus. The Christian loves, adores, and values Jesus Christ above every other thing. And coupled with that fact, the Christian understands that the way to know this Jesus is through the gospel he came to preach and purchase for his people. Jesus came preaching that with him, with his coming, also came a kingdom. But to enter into that kingdom, it would demand repentance. Mark 1, 14, 15, the first recorded sermon of Jesus and Mark Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, here's his gospel, here's his message. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the good news that Jesus had come to proclaim. The reason that repentance is necessary and it becomes the entry point along with faith into a right relationship with Jesus Christ is because repentance demands that you see yourself as you really are. It demands that you agree with God in his assessment of you. Repentance demands that you first understand that though you may want a relationship with Jesus, though you may need a relationship with Jesus, you do not deserve a relationship with Jesus and you cannot earn it. In your own strength. Repentance demands that we understand we've broken the law of God, that that we have rebelled against God's good, uh, gracious, kind care for us. And, And in our sinful rebellion, we have earned God's judgment for our sin. So before you can be made right with God, yes, you must repent. You must come to the place of recognizing that you are a sinner. But repentance is that desire to turn from sin and to follow the Lord in obedience. And coupled with that, Jesus says here, believe. Repent and believe in the gospel. He's calling for faith. The entry point is through faith, not by works. Repentance changes our disposition towards God and sin, where we no longer want our sin. We do an about face to go after Jesus Christ by faith in him. You must believe that Jesus Christ was fully God, that he came to this earth and lived a perfect life in our place and then offered that perfect life as a sacrifice on the cross. Then on the third day, he rose from the grave to life and even now sits at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible says if you will believe that, turning to Christ in repentant faith, you will be saved. You will be rescued from your sins and the judgment your sins have earned and you will belong to the Lord Jesus Christ.
That is the confidence and hope of every believer. But sadly, so many people have come to Jesus in hopes of having some other hope fulfilled. So many have come to Jesus in search of wealth or health or the repair of a broken relationship or relief from the temporal consequences their sin has brought. And they come and they go through the motions of Christianity hoping for a change in their circumstance. But when their circumstance doesn't turn out the way that they hoped, they give up on Jesus and walk out the door. What's happened in that scenario is not that a person came to genuine salvation and then lost their salvation. What's happened in that scenario is that a person came to Jesus asking and looking for something else. And what they have done by their leaving is evidence the the fact that their confidence never was truly in Jesus. It was in what they could get from Jesus. And when they don't get it, they leave, showing that not that they've lost their salvation, but they were not truly his to begin with. As it says in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. The true gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to lay down our pursuit of sin and self as we recognize that Jesus Christ is better than all. In fact, Jesus said, if you come to me and become one of mine, your temporal circumstances will often get worse. You may, like Paul, lose your reputation, lose your job, lose your friends and your family, and in some instances, even lose your life. But the true Christian is the one who looks at all of that stuff and then looks to Jesus and says, Jesus is so far superior, he's so much better, that when I look at all those things in comparison to him, I agree with Paul, they are like trash. Give me Jesus. The true Christian will persevere to the end of life, holding on to their confidence and hope firmly in the person of Jesus Christ and in the gospel. But the truth is they will persevere in their commitment because God is committed to their preservation. Listen to what Jesus says in John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You see, some people get immediately uncomfortable when we read a verse about salvation that contains a condition. They read a verse like this one in Hebrews and they say, Well, if my salvation ultimately depends on me persevering to the end, then how can I have any assurance that I am saved? I don't know the end of my life. But friend, you don't have to worry about that. All you need to worry about this morning is evaluating the substance of your hope. Because if your confidence and hope are truly in the person of Jesus Christ, then what he has said is, all those who hope in me, I will hold firm to the end. And you will find that though the true Christian holds on to Christ with all their might, the reason they're not ripped away by the currents of temptation to sin and the trials of life is because all the while, while they're holding on to Christ, he holds them in his hand. 
And even when their footing begins to slip, he will never let them go. And so with that in mind, every single person in this room is to respond to this text in the exact same way. Just one response. Evaluate the substance of your hope. Evaluate the substance of your hope. What does it consist of? Is it in Christ alone, or does it rest on something you believe he will do for you? Have you come to Jesus in hopes of a better earthly life? Have you come to Jesus because there's some difficult circumstance or trial that you're experiencing that you really hope he will fix? Or have you come to Jesus because you truly recognize that he himself is the most glorious, wonderful being in all of the universe and that knowing and belonging to him surpasses the value of everything else? You see, the author of Hebrews is doing all that he can to say, look at Jesus and look again. Look at him from over here. Look at him from over here. Look at him from here for this reason, to see the superiority of Christ and then to lay down all other things that you might know this one. And so look at him again. And if you determine that your confidence has been placed in any other thing, then, friend, turn in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ this morning, coming to Jesus for Jesus, not for anything else. And if you're here and you're part of the household of Christ already because you already put your faith in him, then let me encourage you, friend, to meditate on his glory anew and do it again and do it again and again. Don't stop meditating on the glories of Jesus Christ. Don't let the temptations and trials of life in a fallen world distract you from your greatest treasure. You have Christ, and he has you. And so the world takes everything else away from you. They can never take Christ. And so you always have a reason for hope, a reason for confidence, no matter what the world throws at you. And the way you walk faithfully through the highs and the lows of life in this temporal world is by meditating consistently and fervently upon him and the truth of the gospel and then walking in accordance to that in faith and obedience. Bring your mind back to this primary truth. Every time you are tempted to slip into sin or despair, therefore, Consider Jesus, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful to have you as the object of our faith and the object of our affection, the object of our worship, because you truly are superior to all other things, all other beings. Forgive us, Lord, for being distracted by the temporal joys and sorrows of this life. Forgive us when we are tempted for our confidence and hope to wane. Help us to remember the true glories of Christ, that you are the treasure hidden in the field, the pearl of great price. We have all if we have you. And if we have you, you have us. And we need not fear the future. You will hold us fast as we cling to you. We thank you for these great realities. May they encourage us now. 
to sing with full hearts and to leave this place filled up and ready to worship and serve you throughout the week. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.